Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. My guest this week is Mark Tewksbury, whom I met at an LGBTQ sports conference at MIT in 2003. There was a guy named Mark Chinsenboon who was at MIT and who put together this really great, um, I think it was first of its kind, LGBTQ sports uh, gathering. It was about 100 people from across mostly North America, some of the leaders in the space, people from the gay games. Mark Tewksbury was there and was the life of the party. Mark is the life of the party wherever he goes. Just a, a, a wonderful, fun guy with 20 plus years of being an out gay man in and around sports. And when I say in and around sports, he has been all over the Olympic movement uh, in, with the IOC and with the Canadian Olympic Committee. Mark is a real leader in this space. He was an Olympic gold medalist in swimming, uh, one of the very first Olympic medalists to come out publicly in 1998. I've been trying to get him on this show for quite a while, but Mark is a very popular guy. He's got a lot going on, and I was just really, uh, really glad that we were finally able to catch up. Anyhow, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Tewksbury. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. It really is uh, wonderful to talk to you again. Um, first of all, the, the the big honor you just received. I'm uh, well, I'm a not so stupid American, but I still really had never heard of the Companion of the Order of Canada. What is that? <laughs> well, you know, what? I mean, just to make it relative to to an american i think it's probably in the in the stratosphere of the presidential medal of freedom it's kind of one of those it's the highest civilian honor that we can have in our country um, we have an honor system called the order of canada and it's it's under the the guise of the governor general on behalf of the queen and it's to reward people for excellence in their fields or their contribution to society etc and there's three ranks within the order there's members there's officers and then there's companions and in the history of our country, of Canada, since the honor system, there's been about 4,000 members, 2,000 officers, and about 500 companions. So I, I join a, a really small group of nation builders in my country, and it's just an enormous honor. I, I, I hear somewhere that you're the first Olympian or rare Olympian to get this honor. Yeah, and the first medalist. So Dick Pound is in there. He's he's the IOC member from Canada that started the World Anti-Doping Agency. And uh, uh, Wayne Gretzky, our hockey player, superstar, is in there. And he was technically part of a, a Winter Olympic team as well. But I'm the first sort of Summer Olympian that won a medal that's just honored, I think, for the stuff that I've done, mostly after I finished swimming. I mean, I, you're... you. Incredible trailblazer in 1998, you were one of the very, very first uh, world-class level elite athletes to come out as gay, um, to come out publicly. Is that part of it? What, what, is, the, what, what is the work that you, th you think they said, this is the guy? I wish I had my um, inscription here because it's so beautiful. The, the very short one, 
um, because they, there's a longer one, the citation that they'll read out. And I was so touched by it because it talked about for sure me sharing my story, my personal story, and they recognize me for the courage and bravery of that. But um, my citation said for his athletic excellence and sport leadership and championing equity, inclusion, and human rights on and off the field of play. So I thought that was very beautifully written. That's that sort of summarizes the, the recognition. I also love that, um, and I get caught doing this too. We, we talk about the field of play, but you are a swimmer. So there was no, there was no field of play. <laughs> the field was a big well, body of water. I like um, to think of all the, all the places I played. <laughs> That's, I love the field of play. Is I love the word play is in my citation. <laughs> Uh, well, it's funny because last uh, last week as I was um, teasing this interview, I, I mentioned that I was I was getting to talk to one of my favorite personalities in and around the, the sports world, and um, that's you. Ever since the day I met you, I was, you, you just you you have this um, wonderful. You're always smiling. You have this wonderful uh, way about you. People gravitate toward you, uh, but. I imagine that it wasn't always that easy back in the 90s as you were struggling to figure out how to be a public figure and a gay man. Um, there must have been a lot of struggle there. Well, boy, Sid, as you say that, it's so interesting. So, of course, I mean, I've actually written a play about that struggle. Um, and, and so there's a lot of rich content and material in there but to unpack that I actually had to um, not even reconcile living as a public figure and a, as a gay man I had to first figure out what it meant to be a gay man because as you know back in the 1980s when I was coming up to the sport world there were no public examples there was no I, I mean I saw uprisings in cities like New York with ACT UP and outing famous people and the AIDS uh, epidemic and you know all sorts of things but it, there wasn't really in the world of sport any discussion of sexuality or so I had to really after the Olympics and I won my first challenge was um, you know I, I sometimes look back and think oh why didn't I come out then and it's because I didn't know I didn't even know how to be gay what I was how to explore that side of my life and and so step one was moving to Australia and then walking away from all of the fame going back to university studying politics and sexuality and gender and having a language that then I could actually start to apply to my own life. And, and so what started as an education in 1994 uh, turned into me coming out publicly in 1998 because I, to your point, I, I had a lot of goodwill. A lot of people um, really gave me, a, a, you know, lovely platforms and, and, and a lot of respect. And I thought, gee, I'm in to take all of that goodwill and I'm going to share my secret and I'm going to challenge people's thoughts on what it means to be gay, what it means to be a you know gay man in sport. And, uh, and that was the beginning of this journey that for sure ultimately was part of that getting the companion of the Order of Canada. I say all the time that homophobia will die in North America before racism. And the reason is kind of what you're talking about. The reason is you, because as you said, you had built up all this goodwill, all this good cheer. People knew who you were. They liked you. You were successful. And they saw all of that before they knew you were gay. And 
with, you know, with the issues of race, you know, unfortunately people see a black person and they know it's a black person before they know the personality, before they know the, how successful they are. Um, but I think it's, it, it, is, it is just what you're talking about that, that is why we've had such incredibly fast change in, in North America as, 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 as far as acceptance of gay people. That's really insightful, Sid. Um, I mean, we don't think of race the same way in Canada, although we have same issues, no question about it. It's just not quite as at the forefront of our national conversation. Um, language tends to come first, the French-English divide. So it just depends on, on your geography. But I, that's really, really insightful. And as you say that, I think like, Imagine the day when, you know, a, a really popular, we still haven't had the superstar actor come out as gay or the superstar sports star, right? The, the center for a hockey team or the goalie or, but, but I agree with you. I think that each time that happens, that moves the, the agenda that much further and that goodwill helps propel this movement forward in a way that uh, you're right, it doesn't for racism. Even still, despite, I mean, that was 22 years ago you came out, and, and as I said, you were one of the very first world-class athletes to come out. I mean, uh, I think Randy Gardner may have done that by then, Robert Dover maybe, um, but there were, there were very, very, very few. And, and, and kids who are 21 today were not born when you came out, and, and I think a lot of them struggled to see a world in which you would have to move continents to, to, to find a path to come out. How was it that you were told back in the 90s that this was going to be a struggle? I mean, was it simply the, the, the void of examples that were out there or were there like messages that you heard either explicit or implicit? Oh, it's it was pretty clear. So I came out um, to my family right after the Olympics. So uh, November of 1992. And I came out to my agent before that. Um, or no, sorry, right after that in December. Um, I was actually down in New York and I was shooting something um, for one of my sponsors and told my agent in you know having a cocktail in a fabulous New York bar that I had a secret and and he basically said yeah thanks for telling me and I never heard that because uh, I don't want to ever be liable if something happens and you can't ever tell anybody you know it just started the whole yeah that's that's not something we're ever going to talk about and so it was really clear I, I felt so trapped um, my parents struggled they were small town Alberta which is kind of like Texas equivalent in Canada um, you know cows and gas and <laughs> wheat and that kind of culture and small town people and and they struggled with it too so there was there was absolutely nothing in my world that was a positive reinforcement and that's where I got the wherewithal to like get the hell out like I remember it was watching what's love caught to do with it with Tina Turner it's funny how just a random thing can be so life-changing but that movie was so touching when Tina Turner is being beaten up by Ike in the back of a limousine and she fights back and she leaves him finally with nothing but her name and there was something about that that I thought you know I can start over I don't need this 
sponsors bullshit and my agent telling me this and my parents not accepting me and you know I'm going to go make my own life and and I happened to be at an event where I spoke and the um, consul general of Australia was there and I was so brave I just went up and said what would it take to to immigrate to your country and he said I I was an excellent candidate and started the process you know in the work I do big question I hear all the time is why do we not have more out gay male professional athletes. And they point to homophobic language and they point to uh, the leagues and the teams. And I tell them more, more often than not, the two reasons I hear are one, the agents. The agents tell them it's going to be a disaster, don't do it. And B is just universal, it's the parents. They're, 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 these are kids in their 20, 21, 22, 25. And they're just concerned about their parents' reaction, the parents having to deal with it. And so it's interesting to hear when we talk about the, the, the struggles that you had, those are the two sources of it. Man, I nailed your thesis, didn't I? I just absolutely <laughs> showed you how right you are. And I never thought of it like that. I have been asked that question uh, an infinite amount of times. And yeah, a good point, Sid. I think you're right. I think it's the... I th because it doesn't make sense like the league itself and you can play and the management's coming around so where is the block and I think you're right it's it's at that very personable family level and it's the agent that's the gatekeeper to the money when you came back to Canada uh you came out and what was the initial reaction in 1998 well actually I came back to Canada because I was um being groomed to be an international olympic committee member back in those days it was still much like the mob where you got to hand pick your successor and uh and to take your seat and so i was tapped by one of our international olympic committee members which was a, a huge honor and and that actually was enough to bring me back from australia and this life i was carving out for myself back into the system. And I learned the hard way not long after I got back, even though the woman that had tapped me and said, you know, you're great, I, I don't care that you're gay. There was a caveat and it said, I don't care you're, that you're gay, the world will, so keep your mouth shut. And I hadn't realized that was the deal I was making when I gave up my life to come back to Canada. You had to live in the country that you would be serving. So I needed to be here. Um, so two years into that muzzled, trapped feeling, I said enough. And, and it was when I, I lost a speaking contract. I dyed my hair blonde. Okay, like I did look like the gayest thing in the world as I bounced onto stage <laughs> with Abba Dancing Queen playing. But that's beside the point. Uh, there, there was a gay guy within a big, huge uh, consulting company that had was sort of the gatekeeper of their HR department. And he signed a six-figure deal for me to speak across the country. And when I bounced on stage with that blonde hair, he canceled the contract. And he just thought I was, quote unquote, too gay. And I wasn't even out yet. And I was like, this is just ridiculous. Like I'm, you know, lying, trying not to be this person and I can't take it anymore. So December 15th, 1998, I pulled the trigger and said, I'm gay and uh, never looked back. How did you do it? Was it, I mean, there was no, there was no Twitter back then. So you had to, you had to use some kind of media. I was pretty old school. Um, I've reached out to, so 
as fate would have it, our equivalent of Barbara Walters uh, was Pamela Wallen, and she had her own interview show on primetime. And she was at the event that I lost the contract for. We shared a speaking agent. So she kind of got word of some of it. And so she wanted to, to share the story. So I did a, a big interview with her to be aired on the 15th of December. Um, the Globe and Mail, our, our big major national newspaper found out they did a front page story. I didn't know it would be front page until December 15th. It also launched that day. And I did a one man show. So I decided I'm, I'm losing corporate speaking. So I'm going to sell tickets directly to the public. I wrote a show, I booked a theater and I sold out a, a one man show and made the announcement in that show. So pretty dramatic. I know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> so one man show, TV interview, newspapers. That's that's a big deal. But I think, you know, if I, what I hope the audience hears is that's how big of a deal it was. I mean, it's still a big deal today. But in 1998, this was this was pretty earth shattering. No, we're, I mean, I'm trying to think Olympic gold medalist men. You might be the first one. I, I, I can't think. Of I one. might have been the first. Like, I know Greg Luganis was out, but I think I was the first to just say, I'm gay. And not like it wasn't because of, of, you know, having to reveal that I had AIDS at the Olympics and I hit the diving board or it wasn't a palimony suit or, you know, it wasn't anything. It was just a, an, a, an announcement, a declaration. And it, said, it was so big that I became, so when you get, I, I didn't learn, know this until that time, whenever I'd been on the front page of the newspaper, I was always overseas because it was because I won the Olympics or something like that. When you're actually in the country and you're a news story on the front page of a national paper, you become fodder for every radio phone-in show across oh the country. And every, like, I swear, I had a hundred calls in the first hour. I, I just was like beside myself. And it, so I had to tell everybody I'm doing a one-man show. I had a camera crew barge into my, my townhouse and I had to be like, get out, please. And, and so I had to do a press conference two days later. It was, it was massive, Sid. It was like 12 cameras. It was like, I've never seen anything like it. And it does, it, it, it attests to the magnitude of that story. And for the most part, the the people, so news people covered it. And then you had a secondary coverage of sport journalists that had always covered my career. And most of their st stories started along the lines of, Mark, 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 why do you have to talk about this? We love you, but why? We don't care. This isn't an issue. And I call bullshit. I was like, you don't get that easy of a pass. You don't get to say this is not an issue before we make it an issue. And that's what I'm doing. That's a great answer. You know, hear all the time that people, I don't care why are we talking, we don't care, but that, that's a great point. No, you, that you don't get a pass on this because yeah. something about the culture that you have helped build made me think if I, and not just me, the people around me think if I wanted to work in and around the Olympic movement. I had to be closeted for the rest of my life. I had to live in secrecy. So no, you don't get a pass. That's such a great response. Thank you. And it's true. Like you, you, an issue does not become a non-issue without the work. You have to feel uncomfortable. You feel my shame that I felt. Feel my discomfort. Good. 
that's how it feels to be ostracized and talk about difficult things. Now we're starting to get there. After that, you, despite being told you got to live in secrecy for the rest of your life if you want to want to go down this road, you were out and proud and you went down that road. You, you engaged with uh, the swimming world and the Olympic world. What did that path look like? I mean, did somebody call you up and say, oh, I, I guess I was wrong. You can do this. <laughs> well, you know, it was a very strange synchronistic time because at that juncture, I was really rising through the international sport leadership ranks. I was had just finished my term as the athlete member of the International Olympic Committee Site Selection Commission that chooses the next Olympic city. It's the most powerful commission there is. I was part of the Toronto uh, 2008 Olympic bid, the executive. So I was, you know, on the International Swimming Federation's Athletes Commission as the secretary. And I had seen what was happening. Some of the corruption, some of the ways that uh, business was done internationally. And I, that, my, my feeling trapped, my feeling like I couldn't be myself combined with what I was sawing, saw just pushed me over the edge. And I actually spoke out against Juan Antonio Samaranch, the president of the IOC, uh, when the scandal started to break around how the bid city process worked, because I'd seen it firsthand. And again, I just called bullshit. You know, he was just talking out of one side of his mouth when I knew the total opposite was happening behind the scenes. In that moment, um, my coming out, which I'd done just two months earlier, suddenly it gave me such credibility. It, it, I never ever imagined that coming out, of course, in the public's eye gave me integrity and, and they saw me as a courageous person and someone they could trust. And I, I just, you know, growing up gay, being told gay's bad and, you know, you're on the wrong side of morality. I never would have imagined that a byproduct of coming out would to give me integrity and respect. It, I, I imagine that the sports world must have had some questions too. I mean, all of a sudden they now have an expert in this space. Was it a topic that they wanted to engage in despite what, you know, the, some of the sports reporters said was, were you now the, the, the gay guy who could give us some insight into this space? You know, I, I, I just became the pariah. I became the Judas. I became the betrayer. And I, my sexuality wasn't so at the forefront in that fight. Uh, it was just a fight for our life, for ethics and for the future of the Olympics. And then I was really ostracized. You know, there was, that's when, when I discovered the, the gay games and the, you know, unfortunately became the out games movement as well. But, but that was where I had a splinter with the Olympic movement. Um, I found an opportunity or an opportunity presented itself to become part of the gay sports movement. And man, it just sounds like all I did back then was raise a little hell because as we know, that turned out pretty challenging as well. But it, it was a time of big change in my life. But, I mean, eventually you went on to work very closely with the Canadian Olympic team. Yes. So, so you know, that took time. So absolutely, my coming out started that process. Sid, I, I predicted when I came out in 98 that in five years, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And fast forward to 2014, and I am still 16 years later, the go-to person for all things international LGBTQ sport. Um, and I was so tired of it. I thought like, this is really sad that 
you still have to come to me. Like there's gotta be somebody else out there. But Sochi was a real tipping point because of the uh, Russian government's attack against our community. And so finally things really changed after Sochi, but it took a long time. It took a long time to kind of create the, the incentive for people that were questioning their sexuality or, or understanding that they maybe needed to speak out about something that they thought they didn't have to in the past. The circumstance finally presented itself for enough people to do that. There was safety in numbers. It's interesting you mentioned 2014 because that year uh, in, in the United States was a year of massive change in this space as well. Jason Collins played in the NBA. Michael Sand came out publicly. That, it's funny that you mentioned that year as well, because that year, it's almost like everything in the, our movement was in like second gear. And that year, all of a sudden, things started to change. People were talking about this more. Athletes were coming out. And even... Even during the Trump administration in the United States, we've seen athletes come out and these conversations just accelerate. So it's interesting to hear that your perspective from the international stage and the Canadian stage kind of points to that, that's, that same year as maybe not a tipping point, but a, a point at which things took a turn. You know, that's how things tend to work. And, and I love to hear that. There's, there's definitely these synchronicities. There's definitely a collective consciousness. I even see when I go back and watch those series on CNN or Time magazine that does decades. And if you read about the 1990s and around 98, that was the era of Alanis Morissette and her revealing those lyrics and her, her, her amazing uh, record. And it was a time where like the, the climate was right for someone like me to break through, to come out, because there was something in society that yearned for authentic stories and to hear things they hadn't heard before. And fast forward to 2014, I don't think it's, you know, those things are connected. That government stance in Sochi and the amateur athletes and Olympians coming out and Michael Sams and Jason Collins, I remember all of that. Um, I even remember there was a sort of a LGBTQ sports inclusion thing at the United Nations and Martina Navratilova was there speaking and something was happening for sure in that era. So looking at 1998 and 2014 and now 2021, what has been, other we've talked about how many athletes are coming out, but what are any other changes that you've noticed that have really stuck out to you as indicative of uh, an evolving sports world? Well, I mean, I sit at the board table of the Olympic Committee in Canada. I have for four years and I'm just, I'm running for another four-year term. And what's fascinating to me is, you know, we're having to do what many organizations have to do is, is look at our makeup and who we represent and who's sitting around the board table. And we had to do a very specific outreach on diversity, but just for people of color because LGBTQ covered women we've done a great job so you know i've seen progress like it's we're there we're at the table we're we're represented we're um talking about issues that are important we make sure that the canadian olympic house at the olympics is a safe house it's actually become pride house in, in lieu of pride house being able to be in in some cities so that's really encouraging to me and i think you know the last bastion for me is is of course there's 
so many countries in the world that are part of the Olympic movement that are also have horrendous laws against gay people. So that's one major challenge. But also, you know, in the Western democracies where we do have a little bit more control on human rights, I say it, it rests again with those professional sports. That's kind of the last bastion of come on, let's let's be open and talk about this. Um, so on that, the, 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 all the countries in the Olympic movement that are problematic, I have kind of gotten on this tear that I think it's time for the IOC to ban Iran from competition. And, and people say, oh, why are you picking on Iran? And, and I just, I am so tired of the human rights violations that come out of this country in particular, uh, assassinating, uh, assassinating Olympic level athletes who, who are dissenting. And I mean, obviously the treatment of women and, and uh, racial minorities and gay people. At what point to you does the Olympic movement say enough? You, you, you need to do something before you can continue being a part of what we do. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, I have a very different approach than the International Olympic Committee would. For me, that, that would have happened a long time ago. Um, I, I, I don't know how we can keep giving games to countries also, right? That, that we just know are not at all aligned with the values that we espouse as, as an Olympic movement. Same with the countries, but there is always an argument to be had for being the place, the one place that the world can unite in peace. I, I actually do get that. And there's a bit of a, like a bit of a table stake there. You know, this, if I'm gonna participate at the Olympics, then I'm buying into this being a peace movement. Of course, that's in complete contradiction to the dictators and the countries that we let participate. But there's always an argument to me on that side of it. Um, I really do think though, um, we've got to figure out how to do games where they, they don't just go to uh, dictatorships, but where, you know, the Olympic ideals are actually brought to life. But yeah, fair question, Sid, and, and I don't disagree with you. It's, uh, it's just never going to happen. The IOC will never take that kind of stand. Well, but they have taken that stand. They took that stand with South Africa. They've taken that stand with Saudi Arabia. They have done it at times. It's just, yeah, it's, well, it's, I hear, you know, the response from some people is, well, the United States is bad too. I'm like, got that, got that. I think it's, I think it's different, but maybe as a Canadian, you're like, it's not that different. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's different. But I mean, they're, they're, you're right. I mean, there are things that can be done. And for sure, within the authority of the Olympic Committee, of the IOC is to sanction, uh, you know, the National Olympic Committee of Iran and to ban them or, you know, uh, yeah. International politics gets uh, a whole other level of fun. You're also, in addition to working with the Canadian Olympic Committee, you're also, you're working on bringing your one-man show to a bigger stage. Yeah, I mean, that's my, that's my sort of fun hobby project. Um, I just... Um, got an opportunity a couple of years ago. It's the 20th anniversary actually of my coming out that I did on December 15th, 2018, 20 years to the day, this, uh, a show on the same stage that I came out on. It was really fun. It was called 50 and Counting in honor of my 50th birthday. And that evolved uh, into something called Belong, a, a really personal, beautiful piece. I think it's, it's 
like 85 minutes uh, run straight through. And I, I did that at a, at a, with a theater show a year ago and it got picked up by a theater company. So I'm just in the works with a, a playwright to kind of take that to the next place. So it's really fun. My day job is I've taken uh, my experience in the Olympics with one of my coaches, a synchronized swimming coach, a woman, and we've distilled that into a curriculum for high performance for people in the corporate world. It's really fun to watch people go through and, and really shine through what we teach them. Well, so much of what we learn in sports pertains to everyday life, teamwork, winning with grace, losing with grace, um, performing, when to, when to yeah. follow. performing under pressure, dealing with, a, you know, making a plan, holding yourself to account, all of the stuff for sure. And it's, we know it. And I love taking people through it because a lot of it, you know, intuitively, but when somebody actually maps it out for you and you learn all these things very purposefully, you kind of go, wow, you know, there is a lot from sport. There's 72 actions that we translate into, into our leadership traits. A, a, a couple of months ago, I interviewed these two uh, Olympic softball players. They just got engaged. And one of them was describing um, the planning of the, uh, the popping the question. And it was literally the blueprint of an, an Olympic athlete. It was like, okay, recruit the teammates, like set up a plan, do a pra do a practice run. <laughs> it's like it was funny <laughs> watching this athlete plot her her this this personal life moment through not even realizing that she was utilizing her skills from sports to do it. That's so cute. So cute. Uh, well Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time uh, and and it's I, I look forward to seeing you again. <laughs> I don't know when. <laughs> Uh, me too, Sid. Really good to see you. Keep up your good work. Uh, you know, you've been out there as long as I have amplifying the gay sport community. So it's a pleasure to be back. You can find Mark Tewksbury on Instagram and Twitter at Mark Tewks. It's M-A-R-K-T-E-W-K-S. If you type in Mark Tewksbury, he's going to show up. He's got lots of letters after his name. He's, uh, he's got lots of awards and he's just a very special guy and, and, and really appreciate him taking the time. Next week I've got a really fascinating conversation with uh, an athlete who nearly lost his leg and went on to come darn near to, to competing to at the Olympic Games. He ended up being a reserve in 2016 um, but it's, it's really great talking with him. So come on back next week for that conversation. Uh, it's really, we talked to, touched on a lot of things, uh, bisexuality and overcoming injury and, and uh, bullying and all kinds of stuff. So anyhow, I hope you have a great week and we will talk to you then.